How is it going, everybody? This is Sean Barnes. I want to welcome you to The Way of the Wolf. On the show today, I have a gentleman named Chris Holt. I actually came across him in the gym that I train at, maybe in the past five to six months or something like that. And I've just been intrigued in watching what he does and how he programs for himself. We finally started chatting a little bit in the gym about a month or so ago, and I just had to get him on the show. So Chris, welcome to The Way of the Wolf. Thank you for having me. All right, man. Tell me a little bit about yourself. All right. Um, well, first off, I I guess I could start from the beginning. Uh, I'm an identical triplet. So my brothers and I were adopted from Korea. So my dad's from Pennsylvania. My mom's from New York. Uh, my dad worked for ExxonMobil. So when we were adopted, we lived in Jersey for about a year, uh, like nursery school. And then we lived overseas for most of my life. So we moved to Sicily. When we were babies, I don't really remember that too much. And then kindergarten to fifth grade, we were in Singapore. Uh, sixth grade, middle of seventh, we were in London. Uh, middle of seventh to tenth grade, we were in Norway. And then our last two years of high school were in Texas. Uh, so yeah. We're, okay, bounced around a lot, sounds yeah, like. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was rough moving around so much as a young kid, but you know, in retrospect, we just saw so much. You know, I mean, every country we lived in, we would vacation around the region, so we got to experience a lot. So. Well, that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Looking back on it now, did you appreciate and value what you were presented with oh, back then? Oh, 100% no. I, I, I think about moments, like when we saw Stonehenge, I remember it vividly, and I was angry. I, was, I might have been like 13, and I just said to my, my parents, I'm like, this, we're in the middle of nowhere. It's just a bunch of dumb rocks. It's cold. It's wet. Why are we out here? And so it's moments like that where I feel like, I just want to go back and just kind of hit myself and say, look, this is like so much culture. You know, I mean, they took us to, we've been to, you know, Australia, been to all over Southeast Asia, Japan, all over Europe, you know, and it's, it's crazy to think about everything we have seen. But, you know, when you're young, you're young, you don't really uh, realize that just to travel to a country and visit is expensive. And we were doing it all the time. So, um, as you've I, I, kind I, of grown up into adulthood, have you mm -hmm. continued to travel? Yeah, I mean, minus COVID, but uh, yeah, I mean, I love to travel as much as I can. Um, for me, it's, you know, when I meet someone that has never moved from their hometown, uh, I find it fascinating. But then I also think, man, the, if they only knew how big yet small the world is, you know, and that I think we were fortunate enough because wherever we lived and even the schools we went to, we exposed to so many different cultures and customs and people and backgrounds and ethnicities and religions and all that stuff. And so you just realize that there's so much commonality between everyone and, um, which unfortunately I think nowadays people are just so focused on our differences. And so I think it was a, a, a good, uh, a good thing for us just growing up, even though it was challenging moving every few years. Um, I still keep in touch with, I mean, I'm going to, one of my friend's uh, 40th birthdays uh, parties tonight, and she uh, and I went to school in, uh, in Norway. So, you know, it's I still keep in touch with a lot of them. Okay. Yeah. All right. And what do you do today? So currently I am a uh, nutritional and fitness coach, um, remote, mostly doing remote work. Um, originally am an architect, so I went to the University of Miami um, School of Architecture, graduated. It was a five-year degree, graduated in 06. Worked for a firm downtown in Miami for a couple of years. And then 2008 hit and the economy crashed. And so I made the decision instead of going to our New York office, which I really had a feeling that I would have probably been let go if I had moved up there because kind of like last one in, first one out type of thing. And uh, so I made the leap from leaving my profession to open at the time the second CrossFit affiliate in Miami. So opened that affiliate in 2008, um, owned and operated that with my business partners for about a decade. I started CrossFit in like 2005, um, but opened the gym in 08, left, sold my portion of the business in 2018, um, moved out to Salt Lake City for a few years with my now ex-wife, uh, but managed um, some CrossFit gyms out there, um, and then uh, moved to Texas to work for at the time was one of my sponsors, Ancestral Supplements, um, started working for Liver King. So I think anyone that's on social media knows Liver King. Now, um, I didn't know who he was till probably nine, six, nine months ago. Yeah, he, like didn't, that. he only started his account maybe like a year ago. That is crazy. Um, so I knew him before 
uh, Liver King kind of existed, but um, uh, the persona. Uh, so I worked for him and that company for about a year and then just realized, you know, my long-term goals aren't really aligning with my position at the company. And so left that and then uh, just kind of got back into what I do now is just nutritional coaching and fitness coaching. Okay. All right. All right. So a few things I want to unpack there. Yeah. Whenever you say you started CrossFit back in 2005, I started CrossFitting around that time, maybe Oh, six, seven time frame. I didn't go to the games or anything, went to regionals a little bit, but I mean, nothing crazy. So when you opened up that second CrossFit affiliate in Miami, was that back when people still had to go see Greg Glassman and get CrossFit certified and all of that? Um, no. So my L1 cert was still being run by Nicole Carroll. So okay. she was still doing that, which is funny because I took a picture with her. It was in Alvin, Texas. I'll, I'll never forget. I flew all the way out here with my one of my business partners. We got our L1 cert done. It was in like, you know, they had no kettlebells, so we were doing dumbbell swings and it was just really makeshift. But everyone was there. You know, Chris Bieler, uh, Dutch Lowry, who if you, I mean, he's an OG. Um, uh, there was Zach Pine was there, um, Andy Stumpf. Uh, so they were all on my L1. And so for me, I was just like, oh my gosh, these people are amazing. <laughs> and so I took a picture with Nicole Carroll and one of my older brothers. Uh, he's a physician and professor at Yale. Uh, he sends me a uh, text message and he says, how do you know Nicole Carroll? I'm like, how do you know Nicole Carroll? <laughs> he says, she was my girlfriend in college for like two semesters. We lived together. I was like, what? I was like, do you know who she is? And he says, I know who she is. I'm like, no, do you know what she does now? And he says, no. And he says, she was just some hippie girl in college. And I said, dude, she's like a big deal in our community. And he's like, oh, that's cool. So then when they first launched the the first test for the L1, the, they had the second affiliate gathering in Miami Beach um, for affiliate owners. And so they allowed us to take the test for free. So I took the test, uh, Nicole Carroll was there, I it was handed my Scantron, and I just said to her, I'm like, I just wanna let you know that Stephen Holt is my brother, and uh, he says hello. And then she like stops, and she says, he's the nicest human being I've ever met. And I'm like, you remember him? She's like, of course I remember him. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Um, so, but yeah, during my time, <clears throat> when I started um, CrossFit, Glassman was around, but wasn't doing the certs. Okay. Um, but I think you and I both know Scott Wells. Oh, and yeah. so that's how I, I, when I first, before I opened my gym, I was doing CrossFit and he had opened the Woodlands mm -hmm. and that's where my mom originally started CrossFit. Really? And then she eventually went to a different affiliate. But, um, but yeah, so I, I met Scott early on. Um, I think, yeah, he was, we both went to the first affiliate gathering in Austin. Uh, I think they called it like Phil Fest. I don't know. It was kind of weird, but, um, yeah, so I've, I've known Scott for a little okay. bit. I haven't talked to him in a while, but and then I found out that he actually went to my high school because I spent my last year as a high school in Montgomery High School. Oh, yeah. So I didn't know that, he, I mean, he's a little older than me, but you know, he knows all the teachers and yeah. I was like, oh man, what a small world. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and he transitioned over away from CrossFit, it's kind of doing his own program. Yeah, the Lift Strong Fast. Uh, lift Strong Run lift, Fast, yeah. yeah. And what's interesting about that is, is I've had Scott on the show a couple of times and I actually started at CrossFit the Woodlands back in 06-ish oh, yeah. timeframe. So I've, I've trained with Scott on and off for more than a decade. And I've learned a lot about my body and anatomy and, and how I respond to certain types of, of programming mm -hmm. styles. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I did struggle with when it comes to CrossFit is holding on to body weight. Oh, I just, it. it didn't matter how much I ate. I actually averaged 170, 173 pounds. I'm 195 now. Okay. I just okay. could not hold on to body weight. And mm -hmm. I don't know if it was just the constant Metcons or, or what exactly was going on. But whenever Scott switched over to the lift strong run fast and the, the conjugate style of, yep. of programming, I started gaining more weight gradually, started getting a lot stronger. And so one of the things that I do want to pick your brain on is, I mean, you look like you're in phenomenal shape, carry decent amount of weight. I don't ever really see you lifting a whole lot of weight. No. So talk, talk me through your programming and what you do. So, yeah, I mean, when we all were in CrossFit, right, doing CrossFit consistently, uh, it was always about, you know, some type of, you know, consistent lifting, right? Like progressions, uh, whether you're doing periodization or whatever it is. And for me in the beginning, it was always, you know, I would do like a hatch program by Bergner or I would do uh five, three, one or whatever it is. And those helped. Um, but 
at the end of the day, I realize that as I get older, my goals change. You know, it's like I'm not in the gym to try to see if I can beat a PR because at the end of the day, if I jack myself up, then I can't train. So, and I'm not trying to compete. Uh, you know, I did, you know, we, let's see, 2008, we opened the gym and I remember they sent out an email saying, hey, sign up for the second annual CrossFit Games. Sign, you know, first 150 people get to go. And I just remember thinking, no, oh, I'll come dead last. So why would I sign up not knowing what they were going to do? And, and and that is one big regret. I'm like, I should have just gone, come dead last and just said I was there. Um, so then 2009 came out and they said, we have regionals, still sign up. So just sign up. And I was like, oh, I, I got to take this uh, sh shot. Obviously did terrible. Um, but then as the sport progressed, uh, it just was, you have to be massively strong. Like back when I did it, it was like bodyweight ninjas and it was cool. But now if you're not, you know, overhead squatting, you know, certain amount of weight, if you're not cleaning 315, it's like, eh, you're just not going to be super competitive. So, you know, I, I got decently strong for my, I'm only 165 pounds. So for me, I've never really fluctuated away from maybe 170 might've been my heaviest during CrossFit. But for me, I just, to where I am now, I can still maintain body aesthetics, which is really all I really want at this point. Obviously, I want functionality and I want to be doing, you know, CrossFit style exercise for the rest of my life. But I'd rather deadlift 135 for 300 reps than 405 for one. And so for me, it's if people follow me, I always do 10 rounds for fun, 20 rounds for fun. And I took that for time out of the equation because anyone that is CrossFit over time, you're just like, it stresses me out. I'm not in here to go hard in the paint anymore. And I will push intensity once in a while, but I'm not, I, I, don't, I don't enjoy it anymore. So for me, it's like, I just rather, you know, it's my meditation, it's, it's, it's my uh, medicine. So for me, if I can be in the gym for an hour, 90 minutes, just methodically moving through 10 rounds of something, that's all I, I enjoy. I love that. At what point did you transition from time to fun? About 10 years ago. Okay. So and how old are you now? I am going to be 40 in December. Okay. So right. um, it was, and it's really funny because I started doing it right around probably 2012 when I stopped competing. We had a, a master's athlete qualify for the games in 2012. So we went out to Carson, super exciting. Um, he was uh, sometime, uh, somewhat frustrating at the, because he, he was top 20 masters. So I said, look, and he didn't want to go. When he found out he qualified, he says, I don't want to go. I said, Greg, even if you come dead last year, the 20th fittest man in the world, like, isn't that pretty cool? And he says, yeah, I guess. So we get to California and he's a firefighter. And so, um, I remember, uh, we get to the hotel, he gets the bag of swag. Right. And when I was at regionals and, you know, sectionals and all the, other, it was all like, you got nothing right until they sign on with Reebok. And so he has all this stuff, jerseys, you know, shoes, shorts. And he just looks at all the colors he says, and he just flat out, he's like, I'm not wearing this stuff, it's gay. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, it's so colorful. I only wear black, bro. And I said, okay. So he was just so obtuse about it. So he only wore his black shorts, which were not Reebok. And they had the masters competing in the, like the parking lot, which was like kind of weird. But um, the judges would say, uh, spectators go over there. He says, no, no, Greg Smart, I'm right here. I'm, I'm, I'm in this heat. And they said, can he work out without the shoes or the shirts? And he says, oh, shirt's too small. What about shirt? Shorts are too big. What about your shoes? Oh, they don't fit. And he's like, okay. And they were like, yeah, just let him work out and whatever. So it was a good experience. But right around that time, I was like, look, it's not about me anymore. I'm not trying to compete. So I'd rather just do stuff for fun. And I remember when I started posting that stuff, people would, you know, send me, because it was all on Facebook at that time. Instagram wasn't, I mean, I had an Instagram account, but I didn't really use it a lot. And, uh, People were just like, well, that doesn't look like fun at all. I said, oh, you don't really get it. And then then people were like, well, why aren't you going uh, hard in the paint? Why are, you, why are you shooting for intensity? Because that's CrossFit. I said, that's not all CrossFit, but I, it stresses me out. And then Chris Spieler comes out with grunt work. <laughs> and everyone's like, he's a genius. And I was like, that's exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm like, really? I'm like, oh, whatever. So yeah, it's been about over a decade since I started that. All right. I like that. I've actually kind of transitioned into something similar. Occasionally, I'll still do something for time. I did a, a workout, I don't know, probably about two weeks or so ago for time. It was actually a, a colleague of mine that I work with, and he lives up in the Northeast, like Ohio or 
something like that mm -hmm. and came down we had dinner and he was telling me about this crossfit workout that he did and it was you you probably saw me doing it in the gym one day it was pull-ups box jumps oh. and barbell presses yes for yeah. and i don't even remember the the scheme of it but yeah. it was as many rounds as possible in, in 18 minutes got it and i did it the first time i actually came out way too hot always and eight eight <laughs> minutes in i was dying my i was watching my heart yeah. thinking oh god this is not good yeah and then i about a week later i did it again and i paced myself gave myself about 45 seconds to a minute rest between each round yep. and actually ended up getting a lot farther into it but each time i did it the next two days i was wrecked yeah like completely I mean, destroyed and i thought this is it was fun in the moment but man now i can't train for two days and i think we forget how much of a tax it is on your cns right like it's it's when you're doing it day in day out you're just used to that type of volume and you're like okay i should just feel like this all the time um but the one you hit it hard and like like if i were to do a legit for time workout i would get crushed mm -hmm. and and again, it's like part of me thinks, oh, man, that sucks because I remember where I used to be with some workouts and stuff like that. But again, like I said, I, I'm at a point in my life where that's not important. You know, uh, I just want to enjoy training. Yeah. So. I, so I'm also similar in that regard. I've gotten to a point where as I age, I'm going to be 41 here in about a week. Oh. But I look more towards aesthetics and functionality, like yes, you just said. Yes. I mean, like one of my best friends... Um, uh, Marcus Philly, you know, he has a, a program called functioning about fun, functional bodybuilding. And he really, when he's, we had talked about this, um, briefly in the gym, but like, it's such a great program because it's, I think CrossFitters in the beginning and I was a purist, you know, if I saw, I actually kicked a client out of my gym because they were doing a bicep curl. And I was like, get out. And, and they were like, excuse me? And then my business partner, he's like, you can't kick people out of the gym. He's like, he was doing a bicep curl, bro. He's like, who cares? I said, not here, bro, not here. And then now I just think, oh, so stupid, right? Yeah. Because I might isolate muscles once in a while, but you know, for me, I just don't find it efficient. But what Marcus does is really accessible and he's tapping into such a large audience. Mm -hmm. So it's people that are either not for CrossFit but want functional training because again it's all how you market it it's all how you label it like you don't if you just took crossfit out of the name and said we're going to do i mean i see so many people in our gym that are clearly bodybuilders mm -hmm. you know but when they train their clients they're training them crossfit style so yeah. I, like one guy i just heard him say all right we're going to do 21 15 9 i was like <laughs> nice and i was like you know i think w w there's so much divide between those i mean you see it on instagram and social media all the time where it's like bodybuilders making fun of crossfitters crossfitters making bodybuilders and marathon runners and whatever and i'm like look why can't we just all get along because yeah. we all want to run we all want to lift heavy we all want to have good conditioning we all want to look good so yeah people have different methods of doing mm -hmm. that but i mean those are always the polarizing topics it's always going to be you know politics religion nutrition and like some type of fitness based thing why do you think it is so polarizing <laughs> because i i can recall over the years just the bodybuilders mocking the crossfitters and i mean even <laughs> even now at legacy people come like you're that crossfitter like, yeah oh. yeah and i actually made a post the other day because ever because i'll do kipping pull-ups yep. and uh oh i saw that post about yeah. strict pull-ups yeah. Yeah, yeah doing yeah, strict yeah. pull-ups yeah, yeah. and stuff like that it's like okay look i can do strict pull-ups i can do a lot of strict pull-ups yeah. i just like to incorporate variation uh, into I, I well when it comes to that type of thing of the kipping it's really i mean for me it's more about explaining it in a very simple way it's it's physics right and what are the goals if your goal is volume and more work in a shorter period of time power output if we're measuring range of motion and it's the same and i can do 10 pull-ups in 10 seconds and it takes you you know 20 seconds to do 10 strict pull-ups based on physics i'm doing more work mm -hmm. you know so people don't understand that yeah. um it's like trying to say running if you try to run without using your arms which is essentially kind of kipping like mm -hmm. you're you're using momentum try to run with your hands by your side you look stupid and yeah. you can't run very fast so i'm like look it's the same thing it's just trying to be more efficient with just getting somewhere quicker yeah um but i think the reason there is such a, a polarized um mentality i i think people project uh, their own issues. So I think a lot of people like bodybuilders might look at CrossFitters and say, wow, they're more fit than me in some aspects. So instead of, 
learning about it or and, and acknowledging it, it's like, I'm just gonna hate on it. So I think too often it's always fear or insecurities that really stem from why people do stuff like that. Okay. Um, and look, like bodybuilders, some of them look amazing, but you know, sometimes I'm like, oh man, look at that that guy he can barely like I, I bet you he can't run from danger you know like if we were running from a lion I'd win but it's like look I still give them massive amounts of respect because that's a lot of dedication not only in the gym but out of the gym as you yeah. know to keep oh, yeah. on muscle you have to eat that has, it's like a second job yeah which I'm not willing to do. So yeah. so I do respect and even endurance athletes. I mean look at marathon runners trying to I mean when you see them running on television, you're like, wow, they don't look like they're running that fast. But when you see they're running like a five, sub five mile for 26.2 miles, you're like, what? Yeah. It's like, just try to hold that pace for, let's see how long you can hold that pace. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's uh, too often. I just wish that people were a little more, um, I don't know, less, you know, polarized about that. And, and it's always like, the social media posts you see. You know, I just saw some guy, he's a bodybuilder and he made some posts about, he saw a, a, a bunch of uh, athletes at the games doing, you know, butterfly pull-ups. And then he's, he's on the lap pull-down machine doing the circular motion. And <laughs> it's just like, look, it's, it, he, it, and I think what happens is because of social media, that almost encourages that because it gets engagement. Mm. And then people are like, well, that's hilarious. Let's share that because yeah, crossfitters are stupid or that's not a real pull-up. And then it, it, I think it all, social media is always, in my opinion, the root of many evils in this world. Um, but unfortunately for a lot of people like myself, we rely on it. Mm -hmm. So it's this double-edged sword that you have to kind of come to terms with. Um, so Well, it can be, I had a gentleman named Dustin Sanchez. He's been on the show a few times. Actually, uh, he hasn't been in Legacy. He normally trains at 5 a.m. in oh, Legacy, yeah. so you probably haven't come across him. But he was on the show a couple of months ago, and we were talking about the power of social media. Mm -hmm. And it can be frustrating when you think about how polarizing it is and how the algorithms and the apps are designed to pull on our lizard brain and get us emotional and oh. engaged because it drives engagement, which 100%. drives retention on the platform, which generates revenue for them. Yep. Now, you can use that for good if you carefully curate the content that you mm -hmm. follow mm -hmm. and engage with. Yep. And this is something that I will get sucked into on and off some sort of post related to politics or something that the current administration is doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh. yeah. and, and I had to go through and just unfollow everything related to politics. And I found that while I'm not as in the know, I actually am in a much better headspace and I'm focused yeah. more on following people that create content that's lighthearted, educational, funny, which is actually a great segue into your content. I started following you, I don't know, probably two months or so, two, three months ago, and love the content that you make. How did you get into creating that content and where does your inspiration come from? Yeah, so I originally used Instagram as just a, a workout journal for me. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't really care about who was following me. I would just post my workouts, post what I did, and that was about it. So uh, it was probably Thanksgiving, maybe... I don't know, this was a while ago, but uh, one of my brother's friends was following me and I, uh, he came up to me and he says, um, hey, I, I like your content, but uh, you make me feel bad. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and he says, well, <clears throat> you know, it's really inspiring what you do physically, but there's such a huge gap between where I am and where you're at. So uh, I just wanna let you know. And I said, all due respect, I don't really care. Uh, I don't do it for you, I do yeah. it for me. And then he says, you do know that you can make money and uh, monetize Instagram. I said, what? He says, yeah, people can pay you to make posts. And I said, no, nah, that's not a thing. <laughs> and he says, yeah. And he said, well, I said, well, what do I have to do? And he says, well, just basic things. First off, um, the photos you post, because before when I started on Instagram, it was obviously a photo platform. Obviously they changed that because they're leaning more towards TikTok style um, videos. But he just said, don't use any filters. Um, do make, get professional photos done, um, focus on your captions a little more. And so I started doing that and um, saw some improvements on my page with like 
consistency, following, engagement, stuff like that. And then I thought, okay, so then I started reaching out to brands to say, hey, do you want to just barter products for like a post? And that's how it started. And I was like, okay, well, this is kind of cool. And so then when I left- Can, can I drill into that yep. real quick? When you say barter products for a post, so you, you are creating a post wearing their products? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yep. So right. it might be like a shirt or a jump rope or something where I'd okay. say, hey, check out this jump rope or whatever. So I'm cool. Um, started there. Um, and then when I left, when I sold my business in 2018, I decided to double down on that. So I had hired a photographer months prior to me leaving Miami and just uh, started pumping out content that had to do with nutrition, fitness, and they're all pictures, like professional photos. And that helped a lot. And then I started getting DMs from brands that said, hey, like, do you wanna, we have a paid partnership. And I'm like, oh, so I get, Paid. And they said, yeah, we'll do, um, you know, number of deliverables per month, as long as, you know, um, obviously you have our handle in your bio and you make the number of posts, then yeah, we could do like a three month um, test. So that's how it started. And then when I got to Utah, um, I started doing more remote work with clients for nutrition. And then um, the situation in Utah was that we moved from Miami because my now ex-wife got a job opportunity out there and I was kind of burnt out from owning a gym and I just said, I need something different. So she says, all right, I have this new job. It pays a lot of money. Um, it can keep us afloat while you just figure your stuff out. Like, just take your time. And of course, six months into us moving to Salt Lake, she got fired. So then I was just like, holy shit, I gotta, I gotta make something happen. So then I went back into hustle mode. And so then that led to a lot of um, new sponsors. So got fortunate with that. Um, so then I, most of my content in the beginning was just based around the products and then based around just fitness, right? And it wasn't what my content is now. What happened was March of 2020 happened and my manager at the time said, hey, I want you to get on this platform called TikTok. And I said, no, it's for like 12 year old girls. And then he's like, no, 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 <laughs> I know, just get on it. He says, uh, I want you to do a couple things. Don't do anything fitness related um, and showcase a, diff a different side of your personality. And he says, because honestly on your Instagram page, you don't smile, which is fine. You're doing like the toughness, the fitness stuff, cool. But find something, Find just scroll, just consume content on TikTok, see what's out there and and start making some content. It doesn't have to be good, just start. So I was I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm on this app. And so I, I get on it and then I realized three hours later, I'm like, oh my God, I'm still scrolling through TikToks. Like what's happening right now? And what caught my eye were the lip syncing videos. And so there was a, a show on Comedy Central. I don't know if it's still on. It's called Drunk History. And yeah. it's it's a great show and they do amazing cameos from actors, but the lip syncing in it is perfect. And that always made me laugh, right? So I said, maybe I can repurpose a lip sync and then do, so all my lip syncing in the beginning had to deal with like, drinking coffee, drinking alcohol, because during the pandemic, we're all locked in at home. So it was always like tequila stuff or something to do with mental health. And what I liked about TikTok in 2020 was that, um, especially those first three to six months, it was just people celebrating our, our dysfunction, right? Where Instagram is about showing your best life. And I thought, man, TikTok is awesome because it's just a bunch of us that are just have all these issues and we're like, it's okay. And this is before celebrities were on it and all the ads and stuff. And I was just, I mean, I like TikTok way more. So I just doubled down on that and then that just blew up. So then once I hit like a million followers on TikTok, I, my manager says, all right, so. Hold on, hold on, hold on. How many followers do you have on TikTok? 1.1 million, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so then I'm at 1,200. Uh, no, <laughs> so I start. Yeah. I started TikTok probably five months or so ago. I and did. it depends on when you start because yeah. I have friends that started literally six months after I did, mm -hmm. and their followings are still at the same amount. And I have friends that we all started around. Oh, not my friends. I mean, people that I met through TikTok, mm -hmm. and all of us are close to either close to a million, over a million, or surpass that. So I don't know what happened. I think obviously the pandemic. They're like, let's just boost people's yeah. content. So I think I got lucky there, but um, so then what I started doing was just like, okay, so Instagram is, um, when I started working for Liver King, I had to drop all my sponsorships. So then I wasn't going to drop my pages. So I was just like, all right, you know, I'll just post stuff. So what I started doing, which kind of messed up my Instagram page was, I just started reposting TikToks. Mm -hmm. Just because I, I need to post something on my page. I don't have anything fitness anymore because I'm just working for Ancestor Supplements. So I'm like, oh, whatever. So that, hurt my account and my account's still recovering from that. But 
um, once I left, I realized, all right, I'm going to kind of get into the comedy aspect, but just do a fitness flair on it for Instagram. So that's lately all I've been doing is just lip syncing, repurposing that to have something that relates to nutrition, lifestyle, fitness. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, again, some of them do well, some of them don't. It's just like, for me, it's just consistency. So are you still doing the bartering with companies now that you're uh, no longer with? No. I mean, most, I, I, once I left Ancestral, I took on, um, fortunately, I have two new sponsors. One is a company called Astroflav, which is out of New Jersey. They do a lot of supplements. Most of the supplements I don't take, I only take the ones that I personally believe in mm -hmm. um, because I'm not going to take whey protein. I'm not going to take pre-workouts. I'm not going to take all that stuff. So they do have three products that I love. One is um, a natural testosterone booster. And so uh, one of my favorite podcasts is the Huberman Labs podcast. Um, so Andrew Huberman is a professor at Stanford. Um, he works in uh, neurobiology and so uh, or neuroscience. And so there are two um, extracts. There's one called Fidogia agrestis, which comes out of Nigeria. And then there's another one called Tongat Ali, which comes out of Indonesia. And both of them are just shrubs, roots, extracts. And lots of clinical trials have been done on them. And it shows that they can naturally boost testosterone. We're not talking crazy numbers, just two, 300 points maybe. But I'm like, look, not that I have testosterone issues, but as we age, as men, yeah. I'll take something natural or as natural as I can get rather than taking something that mm -hmm. you know is something I don't want to take. Yeah. So that's a great product. And then there's another one called um, uh, Rip Factor, which their names are kind of funny, but um, because I remember taking Rip Fuel back in like, mm -hmm. back in the day yeah. when Ephedra was like a yeah. thing. Um, <laughs> but this one has like a flower extract and a bark extract, and they're both clinically proven in some clinical trials to show improvements in strength, muscle endurance and muscle size. So again, it's like, I'd rather take extracts from plants, shrubs, roots, barks, flowers. Um, and again, I'd rather do that and see marginal um, mm -hmm. increases or improvements um, than, you know, take something that obviously is going to do more harm to me than good. Yeah. Um, so that's one of my sponsors. And the second one is Bubs Naturals. Uh, they're out of California. They were created after um, Glenn Bubs Doherty, who is a Navy SEAL that died in Benghazi. So his friends created a, a company that they do MCT oil powder. for. It's a non-dairy creamer. And then they do um, <clears throat> a collagen protein. So but a great company. 10% of all proceeds go to charity. Yeah. And um so they, uh, we had started a conversation, so they're two of my sponsors. So I'm really fortunate to have them as a, and it's really, for both of them, it's really very much a, a family. And that's what I, I like working with brands like that. So like mm -hmm. I had a longstanding relationship with 10,000 who I love, but it was unfortunate that I had to uh, cut that contract early because of, uh, you know, the job with Liver King. Um, so unfortunately working for Liver King, I had to burn some bridges. Um, those ones, I don't think I can get back, which is fine. Um, but you know, things are moving in the right direction. So, all right. I want to transition a little bit into the, the liver King name keeps coming up in this conversation. And clearly you had some sort of business interactions with mm -hmm. him. And one of the things that I'm queuing in on is you had all this stuff that was going on and then you went to work for liver King and you had to stop doing a lot of that stuff for, you know, whatever contractual reasons existed. And then you were with liver King for a period of time and then something happened, you're no longer with him. And now you're doing your own thing. Mm -hmm. So as I think through entrepreneurship, and that's another topic that we talk about here on this show, there's, it appears that there's been some, some ups and downs for yeah. you over yeah. the years. Talk me through some of the lessons that you've learned in these experiences that we've just touched on. Um, well, first and foremost, I feel like when I left architecture, it was it was scary, you know, because that's I've wanted to be an architect since I was in seventh grade. So I, I made it, I did it, and then I hated it. You know, every day I was just like, I, I don't want to go to the office. I mean, this is just the worst job ever. And <clears throat> when I opened my gym, I remember having a mixture of imposter syndrome and kind of panic because I never felt like I was working. And I was like, shouldn't I hate my job? Like, isn't that what we're conditioned to do? Like hate our job and it's just like, that's just life. <laughs> Enjoy the weekend. <clears throat> yeah. And so, you know, my business partner and still very close friend, Tony Graff, uh, he was a, a former uh, national team athlete for USA Taekwondo. So he's been on national team for a while. He retired, I think around 2012 maybe, but um, he was the alternate for like two Olympics. Um, 
amazing guy and he just said look if you work if you love what you do you never work a day in your life and we've heard that adage and it's like okay cool but um what i learned is that with opening the gym if i wanted to like when your back is against the wall you have to make something happen right you can't rely on a steady paycheck you can't rely on safety nets it's just like i i, I literally left architecture i was like look i have no savings at the at that moment and I said, I have three months severance from my company and I got to make it work in three months. And I was terrified, but I just knew, I was like, no, CrossFit's going to be big. I think CrossFit's going to be on TV. And people were like, no, it's not. I was like, yeah, everyone's going to be, it's going to get to a point where I believed that CrossFit would be something that every person knows someone that at least has done it. Like yoga. Everyone knows someone that's done yoga if you have never done yoga. So I was thinking, no, this is big. And so, um, with being an entrepreneur at that time, I just loved the, I, the the fact that if I hustled, I could see physical returns, right? With just clients coming in, monetary um, returns. So, you know, Glassman always talked about like people are always chasing money, right? But it's like, no, just focus on the quality of your service or your product and that stuff will naturally come, right? So that's what I did. I just wanted to create an affiliate that, um, that people wanted to go to. I wanted to create an affiliate where... Uh, if I wanted to go to an affiliate, that's the affiliate I wanted to go to, right? Because there were no affiliates at the time. Um, but then again, with Liver King, I think what happened there was that he just presented this idea that, you know, the company was in startup mode. Um, he didn't believe in side hustles. And at the time, I'm like, I can respect that. I just felt like there were a lot of opportunities um, that were, uh, because if you meet him, he's, he's, he's an intense dude, right? but intense in so many good ways, right? He's got Tony Robbins vibes. Like when you, he's got the, those piercing eyes and he's just, he he has presence that I've never, never seen in person with anyone. And I just thought, wow, if I'm just around him, I'm gonna be more successful because this guy's already massively successful. And so what happened was just, you know, I, I think the long-term trajectory that they had me on, it went back to just being, an employee, you know, being, having a boss. And I was like, look, I can work my ass off. I'm not going to see any return because I'm on salary. And then there was, those were things that were just like, oh, I don't know. Like that sucks. You know, like this is not where I thought I'd be at 39. And uh, you know, a lot of those things. And I just started really thinking about it. I was like, look, you know, I, where I want to be, I, I don't think I can get there in this position anytime soon. So you know, we parted ways, but we left on good terms. And, and I just said, you know, I want to go back to what I'm good at, which is helping people. Um, I enjoy it. And more importantly, I know I can, you know, have more financial freedom by doing that. So it's interesting that people kind of find themselves in a position where they go and work for an employer and they just re they almost cross this line of, hey, I'm done being an employee. I, I just I can't handle it anymore. I want to go out on my own. And I've seen people that kind of, there's a few paths you can take. You start the side hustle, build it up, and that's kind of the, the safe approach. Or you, you just jump ship. You go all in, your back is against the wall, and you're forced to make it work. I've seen both approaches work for people over the years. But as you and I are having this conversation, I'm starting to think about, it, it seems like, is there a higher probability of success when your back is against the wall because you have no other option as opposed to doing it on the side and then never fully making that jump. Yeah. I, I, I think about those moments that I took those leaps, you know, changed professions multiple times. And I like to say, you know, I, I believed in myself. I, I, and I just, double down, triple down on everything. But I know people that have done that and it hasn't worked out, right? Yeah. So like, I don't say, I don't think that there's a magic formula. Mm -hmm. I think, um, unfortunately, it really depends on, you know, what you're you're doing, what your your product is um, that you're trying to, you know, sell or, or offer people. Um, but I think it's kind of hard because I, I I often think back, even now, you know, like me leaving that job with Liver King, I was starting back at zero, you know, and then I thought, how am I going to do this all over again? And fortunately, 
you know, I'm, I'm doing better now financially than I was even when I was in Utah. So like, I think I don't, I don't, and I was talking to my mom about this, like talking about the idea of, um, people that have, uh, motivation and drive and, you know, uh, have this proactive attitude to want more in life. Um, is that taught, is that you're born with that, you know, and, and, and I wonder, you know, because I, when you look at all my brothers and sisters, there's eight of us, you know, all of us are pretty successful, right? And so I wonder, is that upbringing? Because it can't be nature because half my siblings are adopted. So it's like, I think it is something that is taught and instilled, you know? Okay, so that's interesting. And whenever I think about, there have been a lot of studies done as far as the, the number of children that families have, and especially when you, you look at families that have, say, three children. Mm -hmm. Usually the oldest tends to be the, the leader of the group. The youngest is always the baby, and yep. the middle is kind of a mediator of mm -hmm. the group. And, and I haven't looked into levels of success for each of those roles in, in the as the children but i have seen brothers and sisters or siblings that one is massively successful and the other is just sits on a couch or on the parents couch and, and never leaves the house and i find that very interesting especially if they came from the same mother and father same Household. upbringing yeah. re, you know realistically and it is something that is very curious that i'm curious about and hearing your story having so many siblings and the fact that all of you are are have achieved success that's something that's very interesting and i don't know a lot about yeah i mean look i have some siblings that definitely don't do as well mm -hmm. um but for the most part all of us uh are self-motivated you know and i think um you know, I think there was a point where my youngest sister, she's the baby of the family. There were moments where I thought, all right, you know, she's definitely coddled a lot by my parents and will she be able to survive on her own? And, and she is now, I mean, she's a teacher, she's doing great. Um, she's about to get married. Like, so that's all awesome. And I, I, I don't know. I think, um, when it comes to entrepreneurship, you know, I, I think that's also kind of this buzzword nowadays. And I think a lot of people, someone asked me the other day, like, do you believe in college? And I said, at this point, I don't believe in it. I think in this country, it's, it's just a for-profit enterprise, right? And I still am paying off student loans from the University of Miami. Uh, I just found out, like when I started there, it was like 32,000 a year. It's a private school. Most people don't realize that. Um, and then when I graduated, it was about 36. Now it's 65. Whoa. And I'm like, what job are you going to get that's going to pay off if you were to take student loans out for all four years? And I was in a five-year architecture program. So it's, I just think, you know, that's why most companies like uh, Apple and Google and all these, and I think Amazon maybe, they don't require college degrees anymore. And I think it's that idea that, oh, we are uh, taught to believe that that's the next step, right? You go to college. But I think about how much wasted time I spent five years where I'm not didn't use I'm not using any of the stuff I'm even in architecture. Mm -hmm. I didn't use half the stuff I learned in school. Yeah. What could I have been doing to be making money? You know, so it's where is that return on investment? There isn't much. So, you know, I think college is great, you know, but let's be honest, even when I was applying for jobs after architecture school, no one asked for my diploma. And I just got really upset about that. I'm like, I slaved away for five years and you're not even gonna ask where I went to school. Like it's on my resume, but you don't wanna see like proof or something. Mm -hmm. And they're like, no, no, it's all good. So I said, I could have just said I went to Yale. Like yeah. <laughs> how, they wouldn't know, you know, they don't look it up. And so that was really frustrating. So I think nowadays, especially with, you know, the digital world, look, I'm making money online. And I don't need to have a brick and mortar business. I don't need to rely on rent or overhead or anything like that. So people can do really well remotely and online. And I think uh, that's gonna ultimately change. And I think it is currently changing the landscape in terms of where we define success as. You know? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that topic. And you know, one of the things, the, the company that I work for, the CEO is very adamant that you don't need a piece of paper 
for success here, mm-hmm. which I, I respect and, and admire. And I'm starting to see this shift in the landscape where fewer and fewer organizations require a degree. Now, what I do see is those in leadership roles that have degrees are adamant you yes. have to have a degree. Yeah. But another thing that I've seen is people that don't have degrees, this is just my experience, have a tendency to work harder and those with MBAs specifically spend more time bragging about their MBA than actually yeah. getting anything done. Yeah. But to your point, society, especially here in the U.S., is like you get out of high school, you have to go to college. You will not be successful unless you go to college. And you know, I ended up going to a technology school and getting a couple of associate's degrees. And then after that, went straight to Sam Houston to start on a bachelor's degree in computer science. And after two semesters, I was like, I, I can't do this. I want to yeah. start paying down loans and I want to get out and start working. Yeah. And I had part-time jobs throughout that process. And my, my mindset at the time was, okay, I'm going to go pay down some of these loans, make some money, and then come back. And my career trajectory just kind of started its ascent, and I just never went back. And And I've just realized that it has never held me back from accomplishing the things that I want to accomplish. But I would even argue that if you had stayed in, it would have held you back or would have stopped opportunity. It right? would have slowed the, the because, progression. Yeah, because look, unless you're a doctor or a lawyer – uh, you to, those are there's only like maybe a handful of degree or professions that require a college degree, right? Mm-hmm. Other than that, no, I don't. I don't. I think it's a waste of money. And yeah. and look, in in lots of countries, in Norway, for example, I mean, education is free. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like when you look at a lot of systems and industries in this country, it is obviously always boiled down to money. Mm-hmm. It's about Money, money, money. How do we make more money? How do we profit off of people? Even in the food industry. I mean, that's another topic. But um, <clears throat> yeah, I think uh, the the wasted time on... And look, I learned a lot of great things in college. I've made a lot of friends. You know, I was in my... I had my architecture school friends. I was in a fraternity. And then I was a co-ed cheerleader on the, the te- uh, co-ed cheerleading team for the University of Miami. So that was three different groups and it was super fun, right? But... I think, man, how much money could I have been making in those five years when I was digging myself into debt just by going to college, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I think we need to have, more people need to have that conversation and say, look, college is not for everyone and you can still be successful without going to college. Yeah. So I want to go back to something that you touched on earlier, the fact that you've kind of restart or started and then restarted your entrepreneurial journey. Mm -hmm. And my question is the second time around was the ramp to success faster for you or was it about the same? I would say it was faster um, because I was fortunate enough to connect with a company called Linus Health. They're out of Denmark and they create an online platform for online coaches to scale their business. So they had reached out to me. They said, look, you have a huge top funnel, which is just social media. Let's take advantage of that. Um, so they, I have a, a team that I work with out of the LA office. Uh, I have an account manager. Her name is uh, English. She's the best. She helps me with social media strategy. We do weekly meetings. She'll go over metrics of where I'm at, trajectories and stuff like that, campaigns that we want to be doing on social media. Um, but when I started doing nutritional coaching remotely in Salt Lake City, I could only handle maybe like 30 clients. And I was like, okay, this is this is fine because I was working, I was managing CrossFit Gym, I was working for a startup in Salt Lake. So I was making a lot of money and sponsorships. So I was like, all right, you know, if I have 30 nutritional clients on the side, that's just extra money, right? Um, but it was very hard for me to scale. So they create a system where you can do that. So I signed on with them, fortunately, a month before I left Ancestral. And so they said, look, within, you know, the first three months, we would like to see our coaches hitting, you know, around a hundred, um, clients. And I'm like, wow, that, that could be a lot of money. So I fortunately, you know, you know, busted my ass and made it all happen. And I hit a hundred clients in two months. So then that was like, oh wow, like I'm a month ahead of schedule. Um, they were like, look, this is great. And so from there, it's just kind of taken off. So that was way faster. Um, because that was only two months where it took me, you know, six, 12, 18 months just to get clients. Um, but I wasn't really focusing on social media as my funnel. 
right? So that's why I use TikTok and I use Instagram to just generate leads. Do you think the key to that more aggressive ramp is was experience or right time, right place, or I, I think it's a little bit of a lot of things, um, but I think it's experience because when I have a consultation call, I mean, I'm not, I don't believe that I'm trying to sell something. I'm just saying, look, someone comes to me and they are overweight or they've tried everything under the sun or they said, oh, I'm going to do a gastric sleeve because I got nothing else. I, I, there's no other hope for me. If I can just talk them through of how I coach, which is very different than all nutritional coaches, um, and basically sh show them and, and really it's more about no one cares about how much you know, they care about how much you care, you know, and so that's what I care about. I care about them getting results. I don't care about getting money from them, you know, as much as obviously this is, you know, a livelihood. But if they don't get results, then no one wins in that relationship. They're my marketing, right? Um, because I don't do paid advertising right now. So if I have someone walking around the world and they've just lost 60 to 100 pounds, yeah, other people are gonna be like, hey, what are you doing? And then word of mouth. So for me, I think what helped me the most was definitely the experience because I've had hundreds, if not thousands of consultations over the years. And so I just know how to have a conversation, to listen, to um, basically explain to them how I can help them. Because as much as we're all so different, we're all very similar, you know, and, and a lot of people have the same issues um, with regards to root issues. Um, and just explaining to them that, it, you know, consistency is obviously everything, but I also spend a lot of time talking to my clients about their their triggers, right? Because if we don't talk about someone's trauma, someone's relationship with food, which stems from our childhood, um, a trigger, we don't talk about those things, then it doesn't matter because sooner or later, they're gonna get triggered again. And then they're just gonna go down the deep end with just, you know, coping with food or coping with alcohol or whatever it is. So I believe that if we don't talk about the real stuff, then no real long-term change is gonna happen. So that is something very different that I do um, in terms of coaching. I was about to ask, what is it that's different about what you do? And what you just described is huge. Yeah. I mean, that is very substantial and those triggers are very real. And as I'm flashing through other nutritionists that I've worked with over the years, I don't recall having conversations around that. It's like, here's the meal plan, consistent, come in, get your measurements. So that's how every program is set up. And this is on the consultation call. I'll tell people, look, every nutritionist, <clears throat> dietitian, nutrition coach, same system, templates, macros, recipes, good luck. I'll talk to you in a week. And for the life of me, I don't know why people sign up for a program like that because there's zero accountability and there's not much education. So what I wanna do is I wanna get my clients to a point where first off, I wanna educate them on the brain, the body, hormones, what's happening when we ingest poor foods, processed sugars, because I don't want them eating something because I'm telling them to eat it. I want them to truly understand. And then from there, what I also do is something called extreme accountability. So uh, when they start, <clears throat> I only promote three meals a day. No weighing and measuring. I don't believe in that because no one's going to do it. So I want them to intuitively know what a balanced meal looks like, but not only that, but I want them to know what it feels like to consume. And then on our start date, they will be required to text me a picture of their plate of their food, breakfast, lunch, and dinner in real time. So I get three food pictures a day in real time. So extra, uh, because again, the three food pictures holds them accountable to getting three meals because most people either overeat or undereat. It allows me to see what they're doing with quality quantity portion. So if they're eating too much or too few of something, I'll let them know. If the plate looks good, I'll give them a thumbs up. And most importantly, this is where the honor system comes in play. If they eat or drink something off plan, they still have to text me a picture of it, which deters them from doing it, or at least gets them thinking, oh gosh, I have to take a picture of it. So I jokingly tell my clients, if I could follow you around all day and watch you eat, I would, but that's creepy. I can't do that. So <laughs> with technology, we can do that. And Honestly, I just know how humans work. All of us, if given the chance, we will all choose the path of least resistance. Even myself, right? So having holding them accountable on a daily basis and I'm on call to them 24 seven. So anytime a client has a trigger, has a weak moment, is unprepared, they say, Chris, I only have Chipotle and Five Guys in front of me, what do I do? Chris, I'm going to a restaurant Friday night, I don't know what to order off the menu. All restaurants have menus online because of COVID. They text me the link to that menu and I pick for them. So in the beginning, I'd be their eyes so that over time they can develop that uncanny ability to be able to navigate in the real world. So I think that that makes me very different from any nutritional coach or any dietitian, anyone like that, because they're just spitting out templates. And 
honestly, it's not, I've never known anyone that has worked with a dietitian or nutritionist that has a, a, a license to do so that has given them long-term um, success. I mean, look, you can get them to lose weight, but if they can't sustain the weight loss, then who cares, right? So. I think the template method works great from a scale mm -hmm. perspective for the nutritionist to be able to scale their business. However, it is contingent upon the client and their ability to stay strict. How driven are they? Are they intrinsically motivated to do what needs to be and, done? And a lot of people aren't. They're not. Because they might do one recipe, right? And then eat like crap for the other two meals. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, okay, then this doesn't work. Yeah. Or you give them a recipe and they change it. They're like, no, this is calculated for mm -hmm. macronutrient breakdown, caloric intake. And if you're gonna add something to it, it's a moot point, you know? So I, I, the, I, I understand that method and even though what I do takes a lot more work on my end, like I said, if they don't get results, then no one wins, you know? And so I think that that is the one challenge, again, with the company that I partnered with, Linus, they have a model where it is a weekly check-in. And I was doing that in the beginning and I just wasn't seeing consistency. And so I said, I'm gonna go back to the old way I did things when I did nutritional coaching, which again, we can have discussions on how scalable that is, um, but ultimately it gets results mm -hmm. because they, they actually feel like they have a coach in their pocket. Anytime yeah. they need support, they reach out. So, Well, that was exactly where I was going to go next is your method that you've just described. I can see and appreciate the value that you bring to the table, but as I think through entrepreneurship and a lot of the the coaching and things that I do are with entrepreneurs and how to scale their business. Mm -hmm. My question is, how do you scale that? So the goal eventually is to basically have a team, have assistance, you know, like, so I would have a team that, you know, a, a you know, percentage of my clients would send them food pictures. As long as, you know, I train those people and they're on, we're on the same page with that. It doesn't always have to be me. It's just mm -hmm. someone, you know, it's, it's just having someone to, reach out to, to know that you need to check in with. And I think that that's the goal. Yeah. Um, because obviously once I get past a certain number of clients, I, the, there's not enough of you yeah, to go around. Yeah, 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 so. Well, and I think that's a, a challenge that a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with because mm -hmm. when you start a business, it is just you. You've got to figure out how do, how do I handle invoicing? How do I support these clients? How can I be responsive to every one of my clients? And then the entrepreneur becomes the bottleneck at some point. Yes. And I see a lot of business owners that kind of create a job for themselves instead of building a business mm -hmm. because maybe they're reluctant or hesitant to to bring someone in to help yeah. and to let go yep. of yep. that because they they it's their baby. Yep. And that's everything that they've done. And I will be say be the first to say that I am guilty of that, you know, and I, I think um when it comes to the way that I coach, you know, as long as like I said, I train someone that we're on the same page, then then we're good, you know. But yes, I you can be your own worst enemy, right? You can kind of stop yourself from growing just because you're trying to control everything. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, you, you just kind of let things go and that's the only way to scale, yeah. so. What is one of the biggest things that you want to leave with the viewers and listeners from this conversation? Um, for me, it's, you know, we have the holidays coming up or um, Halloween is in two days. Um, this is my favorite time of the year last three months. And what I want to tell people and get this across is that there is a way to get through the holidays without gaining weight, without digging yourself in a deficit or a hole come January 1st. Because in my opinion, New Year's resolutions are BS. They're just lies we tell ourselves and they're empty promises. So why not learn how to navigate through the holidays? And I'm never going to say you can't have certain things, but don't eat like a jerk for three months, you know? It's like there's a way through that, but it doesn't happen without accountability. And again, my goal as a nutritional coach is to get my clients to a point where they can fire me. That's the goal. The diet industry is a billion dollar industry because they're very good at giving people the ability to lose weight, but they give those people no tools to thrive on their own, and that's done by design. So my goal is to give people tools, to go over what does maintenance look like? What does a treat meal look like? When is it okay to have alcohol? You know, because celebratory events, holidays, vacations, these things aren't going away. So why why just kind of put your head in the sand and just say, I'll let future self deal with that afterwards when we all know gaining weight is so easy, but losing weight is so hard. So it's just 
uh, you know, I want to get across that there is a way. And too often, I think people just want to, you know, not think about it. And they just kind of, you know, lean into that self-saboteur voice and say, ah, it's okay. You know, you'll, you'll hit the ground running January 1st. And then we all know gyms are packed in January and come February 1st, we all know who's serious because those are the people that are still there. And it's always a fraction of the people that started. How do people contact you? Uh, you can go to beyondthetats.com. You can go to any of my social media um, platforms, Beyond the Tats, on Instagram or TikTok. Uh, send me a DM. Um, or if you want to get in contact with me to schedule a consultation call, you can just fill out the intake form on my website. Perfect. All right. I am going to hit you up. I want to train with you one day. Yeah. Soon. I've seen all the stuff that you're doing, and I know you and I have had some conversations, but I want to go in one day and just the two of us just crush it. Yeah. You down for that? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Perfect. Let's do it. All right, everybody. That is all we have for the show today. On the show notes, I'll have all of the contact information for Chris, how to work with him. Thank you so much, and y'all have a good one.